0: Daniel chapter 8 tonight. We're going to have five weeks together to finish the five final chapters in the book of Daniel. We had a week off last week because of Easter break, so let me just very briefly remind you as to where chapter 8 fits into the overall structure of the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 of the 12 chapters of the book uh, gives us the setting for the book of Daniel, and that setting is that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has taken exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Daniel uh, is one of those exiles, taken as a teenager, but uh, living there until uh, an old man. And so in that setting, as the chosen people of God from Israel are in captivity to a pagan Gentile nation, one of the questions that people would naturally have is, where is God in all of this? And where do we fit? in all of this. And that's why then, beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, you have God talking about world history and his control over world history. So, my people who are in captivity, do not fear that I have abandoned you or somehow this has thwarted my plan, God's plan. No, to the contrary, I'm in control of world history. And God shows that control of world history beginning in chapter 2 by giving Daniel a vision of a great image, a statue that predicts, prophesies the four world kingdoms that would rule, uh, rule, rule the world. The first of those is the kingdom that Daniel and his associates were in captivity under and that of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and represented by a head of gold then in that image that daniel saw he saw a chest of uh, a chest of silver and arms of silver and that would be the successive world empire the persian uh, the medo persian and then uh, a persian empire that would come after babylon and then a third world kingdom represented by uh, a belly and, and thighs of bronze and that's the greek empire world history tells us Uh, The third world empire. And then the fourth one, represented by uh, legs of iron, is the Roman Empire. So chapter 2, this image, uh, God is communicating through Daniel, I'm still in control. Not only am I in control now, I'm going to be in control in the future. I can tell you who's going to rule the world because I'm going to allow them to do that at a time of my choosing. So you have chapter 2 and that image of the statue. And then you have that matched with, as I've been telling you throughout these weeks, that chapters 2 through 7 have a pairing of each of the chapters. 2 and 7 have the same subject matter. Chapter 2, as I've just described, Daniel's vision of the great image representing four world empires. But chapter 7, as we saw two weeks ago when we were together, Daniel has another vision regarding these four world empires, but this one is of four, four beasts. And each of these beasts is different, and each of them represents those same four world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So chapter 2, chapter 7 deal with the same thing. And then chapters 3 and 6 deal with the same subject matter as well, namely uh, God's protection and deliverance of his people. So in Daniel chapter 3, you have uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Most of you know that that story and how God miraculously delivered them from from harm. That's matched to chapter 6 because in chapter 6, you have Daniel himself delivered from impending doom in the lion's den. So God gives his people who are in captivity this message of, I'm still in control, chapters 2 and 7. And... I can deliver you anytime I want, any way I want. Uh, Chapters 3 and and 6. And he has one other thing to communicate in matching chapters 4 and 5, and that is that I can humble any ruler I want, anytime I want. So in chapter 4, it's the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 5, you have the humbling of his grandson, Belshazzar. So chapter 1 sets the the scene, and then chapters 2 through 7... God is seeking to comfort his people who are in captivity, saying, I'm still in control, I can deliver you, and I can humble any ruler that I have set up anytime I choose. Now, beginning in chapter 8, chapters 8 through 12, the focus is going to be not on world empires. They're still going to be mentioned, as we'll see in the first half of chapter 8. But the focus is now going to shift to Israel and God's plan for Israel. So you have these uh, couple of major sections of the book, chapters 2 through 7, world history, and now chapters 8 through 12 on the future of God's chosen people and and Israel. And so with that, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Now as we start uh, with Daniel chapter 8, there's something that is interesting, at least to me, so act like it's interesting to you, if you would, and I mentioned it, I think in the very first week, but undoubtedly you would have forgotten it by now, but that is that uh, Daniel is one of the uh, sections of the Old Testament that is written in something other than Hebrew. Most of our Old Testament's written in Hebrew but there are just a few sections that are written in Aramaic. And part of Daniel is written in something other than Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. So part of Daniel is in Aramaic, part of it's in Hebrew. Now, which part is is which? Well, chapter 2 and verse 4, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 4, and all the way to the end of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. And the first chapter is written in Hebrew, and then beginning in chapter 8, as we begin here, and all the way to the end of the book, through chapter 12, back to Hebrew again. So chapter 1, Hebrew. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, to the end of chapter 7, Aramaic, and then beginning in chapter 8, back to Hebrew. Why is that? Well, it's because of what I was just saying a bit ago about the, the subject matter. Remember that the subject matter in chapters 2 through 7 is God's control of world history, and of world emperors, and his ability to deliver his people. And so God has that written in Aramaic, which was the commercial language of Daniel's day. And he's doing that to communicate to a wider audience, wider than just Israel, wider than just the Hebrews, wider than just in the language of Hebrew. This message that I, the God of Israel, am not just God of Israel, but I am the God of the world that I have made and all world empires. And so uh, purposely choosing to have it penned in Aramaic to communicate that message that God's in control of the Gentile kingdoms of the world. You have the same kinda thing in Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah was written mainly to Israel as is the book of Daniel. But there's one verse in the entire book of Jeremiah, one verse that instead of being written in Hebrew is written in, uh, is written in Aramaic. It's Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 11. And it says this, you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. One verse in all of Jeremiah, <laughs> written in Aramaic, to say to all of the would-be Uh, nations and would be gods of those nations. That you are not the true creator of the world and you will will perish. And so God did that through Jeremiah and he does it in a big way through Daniel using Hebrew when he's directly focusing upon the future of his people, Israel, and Aramaic when it's a broader message to uh, the world. And so first verse again, in the third year of King Belshazzar. Now, when is the third year of King Belshazzar? That is 551, 551 B.C. And the situation in 551 B.C. under uh, Belshazzar is already ominous for the Babylonian Empire. You m- remember that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus, and then Belshazzar, Nabonidus' son, so Belshazzar is... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And so you have Nebuchadnezzar succeeded by Nabonidus and then Nabonidus allows his son to rule with him. And that's why you have Belshazzar called king of Babylon. But history also records that Nabonidus was king of Babylon. The reason is Nabonidus was really king, but he allowed his son Belshazzar to rule with him and delegate responsibilities to him, especially when Nabonidus would, would be away, which he was at the opening of Daniel chapter 8. Nabonidus is uh, away, he's in Arabia, and he's left uh, Babylon in the hands of his unworthy son, <laughs> uh, Belshazzar. And so uh, dark days ahead for, for Babylon, and the collapse of the Babylonian empire is... Visibly eminent. Within one year, uh, Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, that is going to uh, destroy Babylon in the year 539. But one year after Daniel chapter 8 begins in 551 BC, one year after that, Cyrus is going to begin his work that is ultimately going to culminate in Destroying the Babylon, taking over the Babylonian Empire. Now, uh, a year after, so five fifty B C., Cyrus conquers the uh, army of Media, uh, and it conquers the Median Empire. And as he does that, then for the next ten years, uh, his his armies are are strengthened, the Medo Persian armies, and then ultimately in five thirty nine they end up uh, conquering the Babylonian Empire. So this is what's on the horizon as Daniel chapter 8 opens. Belshazzar is, uh, is standing in his father Nabonidus' stead. It's 551 B.C., but by 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire will be felled. And Daniel says in uh, verse 1, he says, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Now what's the one that he's referring to that already appeared to him? It's the one in chapter 7, where he had a vision of these these four beasts. Now I have another one given to him two years after the one that was given in chapter 7. In verse 2, In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. Now, what, is all of, what is that all about? Well, if you were to read the book of Ezekiel, another uh, prophetic book written during the time of, of exile, while God's people are in captivity, you would find that uh, Ezekiel uh, was transported in a vision from Babylonia to, to Jerusalem. And now here's Daniel even though he's still located physically in the same place, he has this vision of being transported to where he describes in in verse 2, just like that of of Ezekiel. And in this vision, where Daniel's apparently, at least at this point, fully awake, you remember two weeks ago, chapter 7, he says he had a dream, and in his dream he saw visions of these beasts, and he describes them. So he's still seeing visions in both of them, but in the one he's, he's asleep in a dream and he's seeing these visions. And here apparently it's just a vision. He's awake, but this is what he's seeing. And he's seeing himself in uh, the location he describes in verse 2. And that location is 350 miles east of Babylon. And it's the birthplace of this next empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. So Susa is the birthplace of the next empire that's, that's going to come. It will be the headquarters of Cyrus, the one who will conquer the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. And it would uh, be rebuilt uh, uh, later after having been destroyed earlier by the Assyrians, and it's here that where Daniel describes in verse 2 of chapter 8 that the setting for the book of Esther takes place as as well. And you remember that Esther, the book, the book of Esther takes place during the time of the Persian, Persian Empire. And so this is why in Daniel's vision now, as he's going to focus on... Um, the end of these, what's going to happen with these world empires, but in particular, the role of Israel within all of this, in his vision, he's transported to the seat of, the beginning of and the seat of the uh, Persian Empire. And so what does he see? Verse 3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. Now, what's that uh, referring to? Well, as we get later into chapter 8, we're going to find that an angel appears to Daniel, uh, an angel by name, uh, Gabriel. And Gabriel uh, interprets all that's going on. And in Gabriel's interpretation of this uh, ram and and these horns, Gabriel explains to Daniel that the ram represents, in verse 20, the kings of Media and Persia. So here's Daniel. I have this vision. I'm transported, in my vision, 350 miles east to the beginning of and the seat of this later Persian empire. And what do I see? I see this ram. And what does this ram represent? The Persian empire, says Gabriel in in verse 20. And... uh, it, uh, the the kings of Media and Persia says Gabriel, this ram represents. Now you remember that the empire of uh, Persia has been represented already in the book of Daniel, represented by uh, the chest of silver, and the arms of silver. Now the arms are, are important because the Persian Empire had the Media portion and the Persian portion, and so that's why you you almost always have it referred to in. In two ways, as a divided kind of empire, because it involved Cyrus's conquering of the armies of Media, and then merging those in with his own armies of, of Persia, and so you have the two arms representing Media and Persia. Then in chapter seven, that was chapter two, chapter seven. Daniel sees these four beasts, and the second beast is a bear. And you remember the bear is like laying on its laying on its side. Uh, because, again, it's, it's two, uh, two uh, empires that have emerged into one. And the bear had three ribs in its mouth. You guys remember that from two weeks ago? Well, these three ribs are going to show up again here in a, here in a bit. So you've got the two-sided bear in Chapter 7. You've got the two arms in this vision in Chapter 2, both of them representing the dual nature of the, the Persian Empire. And so now uh, our attention is being focused not so much on Babylon now, but on the second world empire that's going to come a few years from the time Daniel sees this vision and that of the the Persian empire. And notice what it says in verse 3 about it. It says that um, one of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. So what is that what's that about? Well, in the beginning there were there were more numbers to the armies of Media than there were of Persia. But over time instead of the Medo-Persian Empire, over time the numbers of the Persians overtake the numbers of the of the Medes, and instead of the Medo-Persian, you see it called the just the Persian Empire. And so that's what is being referred to here now. It grew up later one that was longer than the other. So you have these two horns, Medes, the Persians, but the uh, Persian horn grows up, grows up later, as it were. And so that's what Daniel's referring to in, in verse number 3. Verse 4. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Now, remember I mentioned the bear's got these three ribs? Well, you've got these three directions that he's headed in his, in his conquests. And back two weeks ago, when we were looking at the symbolism of the bear and the, and the three ribs, those three ribs represented the three major conquests for Cyrus as he uh, began to build his his uh, empire. And so that's what you have referred to here now in these three directions in which he is going and, and conquering. The west and the north and, and the south. And so he takes over the uh, media, media uh, army to the, the north, and he takes over uh, Greece to the west, and Babylon and Egypt to to the south. And again, you've got those three ribs in the bear's mouth mentioned in, in chapter 7. So verse 4, I watched the rams; he charged toward the west, north and south, signifying the direction of the different conquests that uh, Cyrus had. No animal could stand against him. None could rescue from his power. Verse 5, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Yeah. All right, so we got, we got a ram that's representing the Persian Empire, described you know in some detail with these three major conquests that made it happen for, for Cyrus. But now, and not just now, but suddenly says verse 5. Here comes another animal, and what might you expect then? This animal represents yet another empire. And so some details about the nature of this next empire are given. Uh, it's a goat that comes suddenly, and there's this prominent horn between its eyes. It comes from the west, conquers the whole earth without touching, touching the ground. So what is that, uh, what is that all about? Well, remember I said that Gabriel's going to show up later in chapter 8, the angel. It's going to explain what's happening here. And in verse uh, 21 of chapter 8, uh, Gabriel is going to say that this represents the king, kingdom of Greece. And we already know this from chapter 2 and the four world empires, that the third of the four is the, the Greek empire. We already know this from the four beasts of chapter 7. And so now this goat that comes suddenly... Is again a reference, according to Gabriel, in chapter 21, or ch- verse 21 of chapter 8, a reference to the kingdom of Greece. And so you've got this horn now in verse 5, a prominent horn between the eyes of this goat. So if this is the Greek Empire, who's this prominent horn? This is uh, none other than Alexander the Great. And so you've got this, this prominent horn between the eyes of this goat that represents the. Uh, Greek Empire and Alexander the Great who established the Greek Empire and it describes this goat as crossing the whole earth without touching the ground Um, meaning he's moving fast verse 5 says suddenly this happens and we're going to review in just a bit the career of Alexander the Great but there is absolutely no doubt that this, this guy moved with a lightning speed in conquering the uh, then-known then known world. But his army consisted of 40,000 men in uh, 334 B.C. So you see how the, the prophecy has come forward now. You know, Daniel seeing this vision in 551 B.C. in the rule of Belshazzar of, of Babylon, he makes mention in verses three, uh, 2, 3, and 4 of the Persian Empire that begins in 539. And Then in 334 B.C., you've got Alexander the Great, and he's got an army of 40,000 40, men. And he conquered the Persian Empire, did Alexander, all the way to the borders of India in an incredibly short period of time. And so without touching, without touching the ground, says the end of verse 5. He dies, does Alexander, at the age of 33 in 323 B.C. So he's a young man, and in his young life, uh, he has conquered massive, as we will see, massive amounts of land and countries. So here's this goat, the Greek Empire, led by Alexander. Verse 6. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. Okay, both sides of the, the empire. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him and none could rescue the ram from his, from his power. And so Alexander has his first victory in, as I said, 334 B.C. And after he's taken all of Asia Minor, he then crushes the army of Darius III of the Medo-Persian Empire in northern Syria in 333 B.C., the next year. And then the island fortress of Tyre along the Mediterranean, fell after a seven-month siege on the part of Alexander and his armies. And that was in um, 332 B.C. And that same year, he conquered Egypt, 332 B.C., conquers Egypt without even a battle. And we'll go on to talk about his remarkable and fast career in just a bit. But let's just stop here and... Uh, talk about one of those conquests, the seven-month siege of the city on the Mediterranean, Tyre, T-Y-R-E. You know, Ezekiel speaks of Tyre a number of times. Remember, Ezekiel is another one of these books that's written during the time that God's people are in exile, and he speaks of, of Tyre. And God, through Ezekiel, prophesies against this prominent ship-building city on the coast of the Mediterranean called Tyre. And where does God do that? Well, he does that in several chapters in Ezekiel, but one of them is chapter 26, Ezekiel chapter 26. Verse 1, Ezekiel says, in the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape, her, scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Yikes, man, you are in trouble, Tyre. So here's God through Ezekiel giving this detailed prophecy against and this is going to be fulfilled and was fulfilled through Alexander the Great. So history tells us what happened with Tyre. They're a, a shipbuilding city on the, on the coast, the Mediterranean. And Alexander is with lightning speed going through the conquest, going through a number of conquests, and he's headed toward Tyre. And so what the people of Tyre do is they leave the coast, (laughs) they take their ships and their stuff, and they go about a mile into the Mediterranean to an island that they call New Tyre. And Alexander can't get here. He's got no way. He's got no ships. He can't get out to us. So when Alexander and his army show up, they're out there going like this. And yet God says, you know, you're going to be cast out into the sea to become a place to spread fishnets. And your walls will be destroyed, your towers will be pulled down. So, lo and behold, here's Alexander. And Alexander, seven-month siege, he tells his men, take down all the buildings entire, and throw them into the sea and build a causeway to get to these people. And you can Google Alexander's Causeway. <laughs> and this is precisely what Alexander did. And so God's prophecy against Tyre through the hand of this pagan guy, Greek uh, ruler and conqueror named Alexander fulfills exactly what God said in Ezekiel chapter 26. So back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. 332, Tyre and Egypt without a battle. Alexander is acclaimed as a deity. He's a god. People are calling him a god. He's happy to be called a god. And in, and in fact, when he takes over Egypt without a battle, <laughs> he establishes a city in Egypt in all humility named Alexandria. <laughs> and Alexandria, Egypt is named after none other than Alexander the the Great. And he moves on to Mesopotamia. He meets Darius III again, defeats him, and defeats the cities of Susa and others in 330. Darius III is is murdered. Alexander pushes his armies into still other cities, down through, now get this, down through what is modern-day Afghanistan and to the borders of, of India. And it's there in his final victory he overcame the war elephants of the local king there and he led his exhausted and discontented troops back to Susa. So he was truly one of the greatest military leaders of all time and in a short period of time he conquers all of those lands. He dies at the age of 33 lamenting that there are no more worlds to to conquer. Um, This... uh, uh, overcame the war elephants. Did you hear me say that? War elephants. Um, I've been to India, and you do not want to make elephants in India, probably or any place else. But I mean, seri- seriously, uh, you you can. There was stuff on YouTube about damage that elephants can do to like people, and uh, we we were given a tour of a national park in, in India that has these these elephants. But, you know, it's stupid Americans, <laughs> like me, if I didn't have an Indian guide to tell me they'll kill you, these, these elephants, I mean, you just go up, you think you're at a zoo, you know. If they see red, there's something about red, that drives them crazy. And if they get a hold, they will slam your, slam your body <laughs> against the pavement. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely brutal. And they can, once they get in a rage, they can move much quicker than you, than you think. And so that's what's being, being referred to, these, these war elephants, but nonetheless, no match for Alexander. Verse 8 in uh, chapter 8. The great, or excuse me, the goat became very great. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, by this time, you know Daniel has talked enough about these empires, and then what happens is going to happen after these uh, with each of these empires. That you should know what's being referred to by these now other four horns, right? Remember, after Alexander dies, that he's not made provision for a successor, and so there are going to, there's going to be a battle, and was a battle historically between four of his generals for control of the empire. And that's what's being referred to now in in verse number 8. The large horn is broken off. In its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of of heaven. You had the same thing back in chapter 7 and verse 6. You got the four beasts representing the four world empires. The third of those beasts was a leopard. And you remember this leopard. Why a leopard, by the way, representing Alexander? Fast. Remember the goat doesn't touch the ground? (laughs) a leopard, and a leopard with uh, four wings. Again, representing these four generals. So now here, again, Third Empire, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, but taking his place is these four horns representing his, his four generals. Now at this point, when Alexander dies, um, Alexander has carved out an empire of... 1.5 million square miles. So from, um, from 334 B.C. to 323 B.C. when he dies, 1.5 million square miles of, of empire. And his, uh, he failed, though, in all of that to create a unified empire. No sooner was he dead than his generals start to quarrel over who's going to rule what, and the four leading uh, generals uh, took over different parts of different parts of the empire. Their names don't don't matter for our purposes. But other than the one that took over uh, Babylon and northern Syria, is going to be taken over 20 years later, and this will become important in just a bit. So just remember that Alexander dies in uh, 323 BC. At the I- Age of 33, his four generals take over. One of those generals takes over the portion of his empire that is Babylon and uh, northern Syria. And that general is going to be taken over 20 years later, and that's going to show up in Daniel chapter 8 in just a bit. Verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn. So out of one of them, out of one of who? These four horns, the four generals, out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Well, remember I said that uh, within 20 years, one of these four is going to be taken over, the one that took over Babylon and, and northern Syria. And sure enough, that, that happens. And uh, he's one of the first kings of the north that's referred to in chapter 11. We'll get to chapter 11 in a, in a few weeks. But this, this other horn takes over one of, one of the four. And um, uh, over a hundred years after, this particular uh, general conquers one of the original four that took over Babylon and northern Syria. A hundred years after that, Coming out of coming out of that dynasty in that area comes a king uh, comes a, a a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and it's Antiochus Epiphanes that's being referred to here. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south to the east and toward the beautiful land. Chapter 11 calls this guy, Antiochus, a despicable person, as we'll see when we get to chapter 11. He was one of the uh, great persecutors of God's people, of of Israel. But according to verse 9, he grows exceedingly great. And so the, the reference point for what uh, Daniel says in verse 9 is, is Syria because that's where this original of the four generals took over that portion of Alexander's empire. Twenty years later, he was taken over by another and then one that followed uh, him a hundred years later, now the reference point is still Syria and so when it refers to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, it's from the standpoint of Syria. So the south is Egypt. And the east is the direction of what used to be the Medo-Persian Empire. And then it says the beautiful land. What do you think the beautiful land is? That would be the promised land. That would be Canaan. That would be Palestine. And so Antiochus comes along and he takes uh, this vast amount of, of territory. But as we're going to see, what's most important about him is how he treats God's people, verse 10. "'It grew until it reached the host of the heavens "'and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth "'and trampled on them.'" Yikes. (laughs) Well, sometimes this uh, stars or starry hosts in biblical symbolism are used two ways. Often used to refer to angels. Uh, Sometimes just used to refer to spiritual leaders. Now, in this context probably referring to spiritual, spiritual leaders, um, as, we'll, as we'll see uh, as it describes what, what happened. But uh, history describes Antiochus' devastating persecutions of, of God's people um, and his harassment of, his killing of the spiritual leaders of Judah and, and Jerusalem. And especially from the years 167 BC to 164 BC, 167 to 164, to and we'll describe those uh, in those years in just a bit. Verse 11. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. Now, who would that? Who would this prince of the host be? This is none other than God Himself. It sets itself up to be as great as God. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. So verse number 11 now talks about what Antiochus Antiochus does, referring to God himself and making himself equal to God himself. He takes away the daily sacrifice. That's the religious ceremonial observances in the tabernacle, and then the... And the, and the temple. His name is Epiphanes, which means a manifestation of God. So Antiochus, God manifest, is his, his name. And he uh, enters, uh, in 169 B.C., he enters the, uh, the sanctuary. And he uh, took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and then 2 years later he sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem to profane telling them to profane the Sabbath and the holy feast defile the sanctuary and the priests build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols to sacrifice swine and unclean animals and to forget the law and change all the ordinances. Now I was reading that as a quote. Do you know what I'm reading that as a quote from? First Maccabees. So what is that? Why am I reading from Maccabees? (laughs) I mean, Maccabees is um, one of the books that are in a section of the Roman Catholic Bible called the Apocrypha. Some of you are familiar with that. But uh, here's what uh, the Apocrypha is. Seven books. Two of those seven are first and second Maccabees. When were they written? Who are the Maccabees? And we'll move on. But these are seven books that were written between the time of the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And you have about a 400-year period between those. A 400-year period in which there were no additional books of the Bible written until the New Testament. But there were still books written. There were just no additional books of the Bible written during that 400-year period. And some of those books included a book called First Maccabees, and then a second one. Now, there are reasons why those seven books are not to be included in the 66 books that make up the, the Bible. But the Roman Catholic Bible has 73 books. It has seven extra books that were written between this period. Now, real quick, how do I know that they shouldn't be included? Because here's the good news. These were written during this 400-year period. And the good news is we had a real authority come along after that. His name's Jesus. <laughs> and he quoted <laughs> the sacred writings that were all completed before he came to earth. He quoted them over and over and over again. And he never, ever quoted one of the apocryphal books that were already in re- in, had been written and he had available. He never quoted any of them. But it gets better. He says... In Luke chapter 11 and verse 51, Luke 11:51, he says uh, to uh, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, "You all are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets." this is Luke 11:51, "You're guilty of the blood of all of the prophets, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zachariah." Now, in addition to uh, I'll, I'll say that for later, Abel Zachariah. So when was Abel killed? First book. Zechariah. Now, if you were to look at the last book, look up the last book of your Old Testament, in the arrangement we have, the 39th of the 39 Old Testament books is Malachi. But Zechariah was not killed in Malachi. He was killed in 2 Chronicles. So how does that help? Why is Jesus saying Abel to Zechariah? Here's why. This is important. Because in the Jewish arrangement of the 39 books of the Old Testament, same 39 books, has exactly the same 39 books, but they're in different order. They start with Genesis, same way, but end, not with Malachi, but guess what? Lo and behold, 2 Chronicles. And so this is Jesus saying now, Jesus, who has these other seven books, including First and Second Maccabees and the entire Apocrypha, but he never quotes from them, and in fact he says, you guys are guilty of the blood of all the prophets from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, from the beginning to what? The end. And not this other junk. I mean other stuff. That was added later. They're not, they're not part of it. And in English, it's just kind of cool that Abel starts with an A and Zechariah starts with a Z. From beginning to end, from A to Z. You're guilty of all the blood of all the, all the prophets, okay? But First and Second Maccabees are books that were written during that 400-year period, not part of the Bible, but nevertheless, very valuable historically because they tell stuff that went on. And who are the Maccabees? Jacob Maccabeus uh, was a Jewish warrior who fought against Antiochus. To recover the temple and the sacred articles. He and his family, the Maccabees, fought against them. And on uh, December 25th, 164 B.C., they reclaimed the temple, did the Maccabees, and uh, sacrificed a lamb on the altar where three years prior, exactly three years prior, December 25th, 167 B.C., Antiochus had offered a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. A sacrilege, right? So now the temple is reclaimed by the Maccabees, and they have a big celebration for eight days. And they light a candle every day. And that's still celebrated as Hanukkah. And the reason Hanukkah takes place around the time of Christmas is uh, is not because, of course, Jews believe in Christ as the coming of God, but because of, because of Hanukkah. And it all goes back to this celebration and the Maccabees and Antiochus and, and all of that. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. How long is all this going to take? He said to me, verse 14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Well, the sanctuary was reconsecrated December 25, 164 B.C. And 2,300 evenings and mornings, it's the Bible's way of saying 2,300 days. How do we know this? Because you've seen evening and morning were the first what? First day. You've seen that before in Genesis chapter 1. So this is referring to 2,300 days. And if you extrapolate back 2,300 days, you're at 170 B.C., which is is when Antiochus uh, began his trampling of of Jerusalem. In fact, Maccabees chapter 1 uh, says this. Antiochus Epiphanes, in those days lawless men came forth from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles round about us. For since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king. He authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile customs, and they removed the marks of circumcision. And they abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar. And that began in 170 B.C. for 2,300 days and um, culminating December 25, 164 B.C. Verse fifteen. <clears throat> While I, Daniel, was watching the vision, trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So you got one calling out and telling Gabriel what to do. Who tells Gabriel what to do? This would be this would be the Lord. So he hears the voice of one who is probably the Lord, and the voice is authorizing and commanding Gabriel to tell him, uh, tell Daniel, uh, what is what is meant, the meaning of, of the vision. Now, Gabriel, it says it's one who uh, looked like a man that's standing before Daniel. And uh, Gabriel's name, Gever, <coughs> is a Hebrew word which means which means man. And if you add L to that, L, Gabriel, then it's man of God. And so that is, that is what Gabriel is called. That's what his, his name means. And this is the first time in the Bible that an angel is named. You have angels showing up, but they're just called angels. This is the first time you have one named, Gabriel. You actually only have two angels in the entire Bible who are named, Michael being the other and he is, named, um, he is named in chapter 10 of Daniel. And uh, Gabriel is going to show up again in, in chapter 9. 500 years from this point, he's going to appear in Jerusalem to Zacharias and announce the birth of John the Baptist. And then six months after that, it's Gabriel who's going to announce the birth of Jesus, uh, uh, the conception of Jesus, in in mary and so god tells gabriel tell daniel the meaning of the vision verse 17 as he came near the place where i was standing i was terrified and i fell prostrate um by the way this is just a you have a gland that's called a prostate but you don't have a prostrate gland did you all know that just you know one of those things that people say sometimes people say a prostrate gland but you have a prostate gland, okay? But this guy is lying prostrate, okay? All right, I feel better, let us move on. (laughs) And I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. Now, here's where this gets interesting. If it wasn't interesting already, it gets interesting because Gabriel now enters the picture to explain this, but he says this vision that you've got is... You know, as history now tells us that it involved a guy named Antiochus and he's this horn that comes after the the other one and he does this desolation in the the temple. But ultimately now, Gabriel is saying this is pointing toward the end. So Antiochus was over 2,000 years ago. But Antiochus is pointing ultimately to another one like Antiochus who will come. And this other one who will come, the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. And so as you now, as you see the description of this one who will come, he sounds very much like Antiochus, but not exactly. He's like Antiochus, but he's different. He's a guy who's going to come later. He's going to come at the end, says Gabriel. And this one who's going to come at the end, he's going to have the depravity. He's going to have the fierceness all of that of Antiochus, but he's another guy that comes at the end that the Bible calls, uh, refers to as the Antichrist. So in verse 17, son of man, Gabriel says, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 18, while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep, deep sleep. So now, (laughs) you know, he starts out awake. Now he's in this Now he's in in this deep, deep sleep with his face to the ground. He touched me and raises me to my feet. I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia, as we've already seen. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes is the first king. This is Alexander and the Greek empire. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. That's the four generals and all of their, right? In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation, will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many, and he will take his stand against the prince of princes, God himself. Yet he will be destroyed, but notice, not by human power. So Antiochus was a real guy over 2,000 years ago. There's going to come, says Gabriel, At the time of the end, another like Antiochus, very much like him. But he will be different in that he's going to come later at the time of the end. And he will be destroyed, not like Antiochus was, by human power, but by the direct power of God, as will happen when Jesus returns at the Battle of Armageddon. The vision, verse 26, of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. And so again, Gabriel is saying, I've given you what's going going to happen in world history, and then this is going to happen at the end of world history, in the distant future. And after all of that, I, Daniel, was exhausted. And I lay ill for several days. And then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. So, you know, God has given to Daniel a very detailed description of what's going to happen with world history and focused on how his chosen people, Israel, fit into that. And yet at the end of all this, Daniel says, you know, I was a mess after this was over and I still couldn't get my mind around it all. Now how so? God gives him all his detail. How can he, you know, not get his mind around it? Well, last passage for us for tonight. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 and verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke, all right, so the prophets, now prior, one of whom is Daniel, the prophets who spoke, of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that, was followed, that would follow. You see what Peter is saying? He's saying these prophets were given true information from God about what's going to happen in the future. But they found themselves with the greatest care trying to determine the time and the circumstances. How is this all going to fit together? And the truth is many of them died not knowing how it's all going to fit together. They, one, awaited further revelation to see how the time and the circumstances were were going to fit together. I'll just give you one example and we'll be done. But you have multiple times in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, God saying through the prophets, predicting that there's going to come a time when I, God, am going to restore things to their original state. The Bible begins in a garden, ends in a city, as I said this past Sunday, and then there's the mess in between, and that's where we are, right? Um, and God is going to restore the, the things as they were in what, what the first part of the Bible calls the kingdom. And so the Bible speaks of the kingdom over and, over and over again. And so the Old Testament prophets look forward to the kingdom and all the characteristics of the kingdom. But how long is this kingdom going to be? And they all died not knowing how long the kingdom would be. Every last one of them. They knew there was going to be a kingdom, and they don't know how long it's going to be. Paul, in the New Testament, comes along, and he speaks of the kingdom. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13, he speaks of those of us who have been saved as having been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. He knows about the kingdom. He's read the Old Testament. Guess what? Paul dies, and he doesn't know how long the kingdom's going to be. And all these guys die, and they don't know how long they... And you know the first time you find out how long the kingdom's going to be? Revelation chapter 20. Get to the second to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible and you're told that the kingdom is going to last for a thousand years. And that's why we call it the millennium. Latin for a thousand. So it's going to be the millennium. And so John, who writes the last book of the Bible, is the, the, the last book and he's the first guy to learn how long the kingdom's going to be after all of that. So you've got these prophets who are trying to figure out how's it all going to fit together. And God gives more information, more information, until he gives us the complete message of the Bible in its, its 66 books. Now, you say the kingdom is only going to last a thousand years. Yes, and then it merges into what we call the eternal state that we normally refer to as, as heaven, okay? So that's how my Daniel ends in chapter 8 by saying, I was exhausted, I was ill for several days, and I'm trying to get my, my mind around it. Daniel now knows a pretty good bit of this in heaven but at this time he did all right we'll pick it up chapter 9 next week chapter 9 is where God gives through Gabriel a period of time that God is going to accomplish all of his uh, work for his people the people of Israel including the coming of the Messiah the killing of the Messiah the coming of the Antichrist he gives a time frame for that in chapter 9 we'll see that next week okay thanks